Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Open Concessions podcast presented by Toyota, featuring a weekly in-depth conversation with a Chicago Cubs-related personality. We are your hosts. I'm Len Casper alongside Jim Deshays. You may know us as the Cubs television tandem. J.D., I would ask you how you're doing, but I've actually been in your presence a couple of times this week as uh, we are doing daily shows on Marquee Sports Network from Wrigley Field. And uh, I guess since the last time we spoke, the big change is that we get to watch uh, balls hit bats, and uh, it's just fun to be back at the ballpark. Yeah, uh, spot on, just being back out there, hearing the crack of the bat and the snap of the leather with guys playing catch and throwing the ball around. It's been very enjoyable. Um, you know, it's funny, you know, kind of a week or so ago, I was looking forward to getting back out to the ballpark, and my hope was that we just talk about baseball but clearly that's not going to be the case, um, you know, all year long. This this virus is going to be front and center. But, um, you know, even with that, so much fun to, to have some level of normalcy down there on the diamond. This week's guest is actually an avid listener to our podcast. It's Tom Ricketts, Cubs executive chairman. And, uh, J.D., we see Tom quite a bit. Um, he likes to roam around the ballpark during home games at Wrigley Field. That may be a bit of a challenge for him this year, but man, he is as big a baseball fan as there is out there. Yeah, his story is a great one. Growing up in the Midwest, a baseball fan as a kid, and uh, you know, fell in love with the Cubs when he moved here, met his wife in the bleachers. I think people know that story. We'll go a little bit deeper with Tom on some other issues. Um, but, but yeah, he's a, just a really engaging, interesting guy to talk to. So without further delay, enjoy our conversation with Tom Ricketts. Tom, thanks for joining us this week. Uh, everybody in the world has been basically working from home for the last several months, although uh, we've been at the ballpark here lately. Uh, how often have you uh, gotten to Wrigley or you, you, you're trying to get there as much as you can or still staying close to home? Yeah, like everyone else, I've, I've been pretty much working from home, trying to get down there uh, like every Tuesday has been kind of my routine so far. I haven't been down in the last couple of days, but I'll be back down um, tomorrow to uh, check out the new setup that we have to support all the players coming back. So, so I'll be back a little more often now. I know we've had these um, – uh, kind of Zoom calls uh, organization-wide, and uh, much of the discussion uh, on those calls are about uh, the health protocols, not just for the players, but but really for everybody. And there will be you know essential workers uh, who are behind the scenes who will have to be not only at Wrigley Field, but at the team offices as well. Has that taken up a, a lot of time for you and Crane and Theo making sure uh, that the workspace is as absolutely healthy and safe as possible here the next couple of months? Well, absolutely. Uh, I mean, the uh, and you guys have probably seen the the Major League Baseball health protocols that have gone around. It's a couple hundred pages. I mean, the, the synopsis that was given to me by our team is 29 pages. So um, obviously player player health and player safety during the games is the is critical. But it's also the the health of the people that are coming in to support the players on those game days. And that's what everyone's focused on at the moment. With respect to the offices, we're trying to keep them as, as locked down as possible with only essential people going in and out. We, um, you know, if we can work from home, we would prefer people to do that for the while, for the time being. And, um, and hopefully over time, we'll start to reopen those. But but then in the short run, it's just about people supporting the games. And if uh, if people are there to support the games and they're coming in, if they don't have to be there to support the games, then they're staying home. So it's interesting because MLB has the, the protocol that you mentioned, and obviously they've um, conferred with a lot of medical experts. Um, but this, there's no – is there a blueprint for this? I mean, in 1918, we had the Spanish flu, and there's been other outbreaks in other countries. Um, but we've never been through anything like this, so – Kind of who's the go-to person or what is the go-to resource to, to, to figure this all out? Wow, I don't know. Like the, the, I know the league talked with people at the University of Nebraska who have an infectious disease department. That's one of the places that's leading the country in the thinking on this. 
but I'm sure they've they've talked to many many other specialists, and uh, it's just been a just a a long process to make sure we have as thorough of health protocols as possible. And if you've seen them, as you know, they're really thorough. I mean, there's tier one, tier two, tier three type people that are allowed in the park, and then everybody else is to stay away. And so um, I think the league's done as good a job as can be can you know as they can to get these protocols in place. Now we have to get used to executing them. And um, let's hope that it, it's enough. You know, it's um, we obviously want to have a health, a, a healthy and safe work environment for for all the players. And um, hopefully these 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 protocols will get us there. I mean, there's really nothing you can do to make it a hundred percent. There's no um, there's no non risk situations. But I think that you know all the work they put into this will make this as as um, like I said as healthy and as safe safety as safe environment as we can have. Yeah, none of us uh, on this podcast is a is an expert on this. Uh, we've all, I think, tried to educate ourselves and our families as much as possible. But the the thing that and I, I don't know how you feel about it, Tom. I think it's what we don't know. Uh, and, and talking, I have a good friend who is a family doctor. Uh, you talked about a lot of the experts, uh, the team, and Major League Baseball have conferred with. I think that's the trickiest part. Uh, of this landscape looking forward is it's not necessarily what we know it's that it keeps changing and 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 Tommy Hadovy's story in particular uh very harrowing in that he's 38 uh he's about in as good a shape as anybody you'd ever meet uh no underlying conditions that he knew of and he got totally waylaid by this thing for a month and and as you say there's nothing that's risk free and you can even do all the right things and still get it. And I think that's what scares me the most. Yeah, absolutely. We're learning more every day. <clears throat> and the um, obviously for the players, it's just a matter of just keeping them out of situations where they're likely to contract anything. And just, you know, hopefully we'll catch it quickly when someone does contract the disease and, and get them in a place where they can, um, if they have symptoms, get treated. Or if they don't have symptoms, just stay away from other folks. And, um, you know, I, I think the protocol, like I said, I think the protocols are as thorough as they can be, and hopefully it'll be enough to keep healthy teams on the field. Is there a threshold, Tom, in your mind or conversations with other clubs? Like if, uh, you know, four guys in our club come down with it and we have to shut them down and we have to shut down three of their teammates because they've been in proximity. I mean, is there a magic number out there where everybody says we got to take another pause or is it just a fluid situation and you react as you go? It's a fluid situation, and the commissioner has the authority to end the season or to to make adjustments in in uh, in case there are some some you know extra extra health risks. Um, I think that obviously the teams have more players to choose from, you know, expanded rosters on the front end, and extra extra players ready to go down at uh, down in South Bend. So I think we're going to try to play through if we get. If we get a few guys sick at one time, we're just going to have to play through and just replace them. But um, hopefully, it'll always it'll be isolated and uh, not too many guys at once, so that the, the league can keep moving forward and all the players that the fans want to see get to play. As we look back at the three and a half months uh, during the the, the break, uh, mid March, uh, spring training was shut down, and and we just were able to start up again. Unfortunately, a lot of the headlines around Major League Baseball were about, you know, how to get that accomplished. What, what was your big takeaway? And was there ever a moment where you were really worried that we might not be able to even get this part started? Well, every time I, I got to the point where I was thinking maybe there wasn't going to be a season, I would just remind myself that almost all the owners, uh, at least all the owners I know, wanted to play. And I, you have to assume that almost all the players wanted to play. And, you know, I think that the, uh, I mean, the great news is we, we do have games that are coming up and it's, it's, it's good for the game. It's good for the fans. It, it's good for our country to have games start right now. I, I think the process over the last three months between the, between the league and the union, you know, it, it wasn't, it wasn't perfect. It wasn't good. The, uh, I think a lot of times it was, a little too public, maybe sometimes uh, a little too personal, but um, but ultimately we got through it to this point anyway. And I hope that right now everyone takes a deep breath, 
and reminds ourselves both from a, from the club standpoint and from the player standpoint that we really are partners. I mean, we're in this together. I mean, this is we are two sides of the same coin. And hopefully, as we go looking as we go into the future and look at other negotiations that are coming up, that we remind ourselves of that because the um, uh, because I just I, I would hate to see something that uh, hate to see something that it you know is reflects poorly on our game be um, you know be part of the next collective bargaining agreement or any other future negotiations. So um, so I'm glad we have games going and um, looking forward to hearing you guys broadcast those games. But uh, but I think we also have to look to the future of the game and remind ourselves that we're in this together and we need to we need to do things to to build baseball and not do things that uh, distract people from the game they love. You know, Tom, I remember reading uh, some years ago a polling done and, you know, a high percentage of, of people hate Congress, but a high percentage of people like their congressperson. Um, yep. So it's kind of an odd thing. And I think the same thing exists in baseball to a certain extent. I think you hear a lot from players these days because of the, the negotiations of ah, the owners, this, the owners, that. But you also hear, I, I love my guy, you know. So um, are you worried just on a personal level, your relationship with, with your guys? You've always had a good relationship with your players. And were you able to talk to some of the players during this, you know, reach out to them or have conversations in kind of on a one-to-one level? Yeah, well, I, I you know, I, JD, I, I, I have heard that, you know, people don't like Congress, but they like their congressmen. And, and um, I think there is a lot of that here. Frankly, I've never had a bad conversation with any of our players. I, I think that um, they appreciate everything that we do for them as an organization, everything that I do for them as, as, uh, as the team chairman. Um, I like all of our guys, and I think all of them wanted to come back and play. Um, you know, when it gets to kind of the, the league versus the union, it gets a little depersonalized and, and, you know, and, and I think that is a bad place for a negotiation to go because ultimately our goals are the same. And, um, you know, and so, you know, we'll see where it goes next year. I, I, you know, as we, as we look at the next CBA, but once again, I just hope that everyone reminds themselves that this is one game and, uh, we are, we are both going to have to work hard to, uh, to keep it growing. Well, you know, in this social media uh, age, I guess the, the bad thing is that, you know, one quote or one story can really blow up and with no sports going on, this ended up. Uh, grabbing a lot of the headlines. But I guess the good news is when you move on to the next thing, and that is we will have a season, uh, I feel like the focus has completely shifted now to obviously being safe and healthy, which we discussed when we began, uh, but really talking about the sport and what the games will look like. And that's really the place we all wanted to be. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, I know it's only a 60 game season, you know, not 162 like we're, we're used to, but I think that'll make it interesting. I think it, it'll be a sprint. There will be no uh, no days off in the sense that you can't like let that third game of the road trip go because you, you, your guys are worn out. Every game has to matter, and I think managers are going to manage appropriately. We're going to it's going to every game is going to have that extra that extra you know value on what happens at the end of the season, and and um, you know and I think our guys are going to be ready. I think we're going to start quick. I think. Uh, I think Rossi's got everybody in the right frame of mind. Everybody's ready to everybody's ready to play. We've had one significant setback on the injury front, but but I think everyone else is ready to go. And you're going to have to get out of the gate fast and play hard. And every game's really going to matter. Where will you watch the games from, Tom? I don't know. I don't know. You know, you guys know my routine. I usually just walk around. Right. Uh, I suppose. I, I suppose there's still. There is the the box I can sit in, or I guess I just pick any seat I want, I suppose. But it's gonna totally it's gonna totally throw off my routine. I and and I really do miss the games. My God, like um, you know the uh, you know just the whole routine of getting to the park um, and you know grabbing lunch with a uh, with a sponsor or or doing some pregame stuff on the field and then wandering through the park saying hi to people I know and saying hi to people that I don't know and just handing out baseballs and doing my thing. I really miss that. It's going to be weird to be at the ballpark for me as, um, you know, as compared to what I normally do, it's going to be, it's going to be pretty quiet and pretty awkward, but uh, I don't know. Maybe I'll sit with you guys. I was going to, maybe we could get a spot on the rooftop. Okay. 
hang out on the rooftop, have a beer and yell and scream from left field. Yeah, we might we might have the rooftops. Uh, that might be a place to go. Uh, we're going to work with the city to see if that might be an option for people. Um, I think it's it is distanced from the players, so that's a good thing. And then they're large enough that you can put a you can put a few people up there, and they can have all they can all have their own space. I'm sure there's uh, accommodations or other types of things we can do up there to make them uh, more safe. But um, yeah, the rooftops should be should be engaged. We'll see. As a fan, what are you most interested in in terms of what will look different? For me, it's you know, will the quality of play be affected by you know the social distancing in the dugouts and uh, the no fan part of it? We have new rules. We have a DH in the National League. We have new extra innings rules. What what particular aspect of the of the new venture are you most looking forward to seeing? Oh, looking forward to seeing. Uh, well, we're most interested in how it'll play. I yeah, guess. You know, I think that the um, I, I think the weirdest thing for me is going to be the fly ball to the outfield and having empty bleachers, you know, in the background mm-hmm. and. Um, as you know, it's one of the things that we worked on. We, you know, we, we bought the club. And for the first couple of years, as we were really rebuilding, one of the things I really asked the people at the team to focus on was making sure that we kept the bleachers full because it just it's such a big part of the Wrigley experience. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's the only large general admission section in baseball, and it just has a vibe to it. And when you see it half empty or – in this case, completely empty. It's going to be a little weird. So um, I think that'll be odd for me. Hopefully the players, and I think, I think you know, I think we have the right players, veteran players who will keep it all in perspective, but hopefully it won't affect the players and uh, take away from their concentration on the game or their enjoyment of the game. Some teams are considering the, the cardboard cutouts. It, it, am I correct in saying that that's not really something you'd prefer to do at this point? And might that change for fans? Uh, at the moment, we have no plans for that. Um, we did. I mean, I, I, I think it's pretty clever, and I, I appreciate it when, like, Dortmund, I think, was the first team to do it. But um, for us, we weren't sure it was the right look for us and for Wrigley, so um, we have no plans on doing that at the moment. Yeah, you're a soccer guy, so uh, have you been watching? And has that been instructive at all uh, in terms of what MLB will look like this summer? Yeah, you got to give the uh, the Bundesliga credit for uh, coming up with a plan as quickly as they did and getting their teams back on the field. Uh, gosh, almost six weeks ago now, I suppose. Um, I have watched a, a handful of Premier League games with um, without crowds, and actually, it doesn't it doesn't bother me that much. They do pipe in a little bit of noise when there's when there's a goal, and so um, it isn't that different, at least in uh, in the, in the soccer world. And hopefully fans will appreciate it in the baseball world as well. Hopefully our, our games will have the same kind of energy, even if you can't, you know, cut away to see fans enjoying the day. But it's different. I mean, as you guys know, I mean, coming to Wrigley is really, it, it's not just watching a baseball game. It's really an experience. And one of the things that, um, that, that our, our broadcasts have always highlighted is the fact that it is a, just a great place to be. And so in between pitches or in between outs, you can – click away to a family having a good time or people enjoying themselves in the bleachers. And it'll be weird not having those cutaways because I think that's just a big part of what the, what the baseball experience is. But, um, but I think the quality of the game on the field will be very compelling for our fans at home. And um, on top of all that, I'm looking forward to marquee. Um, You know, I think uh, Mike and Mike who uh, are planning our games have a lot of great, uh, have a lot of great um, ideas to, bring the broadcasts off the page a little bit and do some different things. And I mean, it should be a great production. And so I'm excited to watching our, watching our games on our channel. We will get back to uh, what is going on now and how the season will look. But Tom, we, we got to get to know you a little better because in a podcast form, you can do that. So <laughs> I want to take us back to Oh, let's see. Eight, nine, ten-year-old Tom Ricketts. And what was your baseball fandom like at that time in your life? Well, I grew up in Omaha. So uh, the Omaha Royals were the AAA club of Kansas City. 
So when I think of the first baseball heroes I have, mine are guys like uh, Rupert Jones and UL Washington. They were like AAA stars. Uh, Rupert got taken away in the 76 expansion draft by the Mariners. And UL Washington went on to play. Uh, he was a shortstop. He played with a toothpick in his mouth. I don't know if you guys yeah, remember. Yeah, for sure. I was going to ask you if he was doing the toothpick back then. Yeah, he was in Omaha. All the kids thought that was pretty cool. So, um, but, you know, mid-70s, I was a huge baseball fan. Um, you know, and in fact, I really liked your podcast last week with uh, with the authors on because it really struck a lot of notes with me and, 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 and how baseball became such a big part of my life. But uh, it was... You know, mainly the Royals, because um, that's who we cheered for, because the players would go through Omaha onto Kansas City. Um, I did like the Cubs. You know, I, there was, you know, the Bill Madlocks and the Bill Buckners and those kind of guys that, that I thought were cool. And then, of course, mid-70s, you know, the, the Reds and the Yankees were teams that um, I could name all the players on today probably still. Um, so, but yeah, we, we grew up that way. In fact, you know, in Omaha, the Royals are kind of uh, – was were you know the team a lot of, everybody cheered for and the Royals in the seventies and in through through the mid eighties were pretty good and uh, I remember one time I was uh, I made a baseball card trade I uh, because there's a premium on Royals cards I traded Paul Splitorf starting pitcher for the Kansas City Royals to um, my neighbor for Bill Buckner's Dodger card and the one with the little Tops Rookie of the Year thing. I don't think he was ever really Rookie of the Year, but you know, Tops All Rookie Team little little uh, thing in the lower right hand corner. And uh, so I got to do the split orf for Buckner trade until my neighbor Danny decided that he didn't like that trade and I wouldn't do trade backs. So I just went home. So he he literally uh, rang our doorbell. He, he doorbell ditched us for a couple hours and kept calling <laughs> us on the phone and hanging up, trying to force Commissioner Marlene Ricketts to to rescind the trade. And, um, and ultimately I had to give Bill Buckner back to Danny. Um, and, uh, two kind of ends to that story was Danny, Danny actually gave me the card back, uh, when I got married oh. and, and I got to tell Bill Buckner that story. That's <laughs> so good. That is so, great. So that's what the, the seed was planted to be a baseball executive right there when you started making baseball card deals. Right, and there's times I want to call trade backs, uh, but you don't, they don't like they don't let you do it in baseball either. That's yeah. so funny you mentioned that, um, and I don't want to break bad on my son Leo, who's uh, very well adjusted and is a college student. But about ten years ago, I believe it was a Pokemon card trade, and uh, he immediately regretted it. And his friend said, "Yeah, no trade backs," and it was a good life lesson that once you <laughs> once you pull the trigger, you just you got to live with it, right, Tom? In life, there are no trade backs. That's right. <laughs> we learned a lesson. Did you have a big collection, a big shoebox full of cards, or how heavy into the, the card business were you? Uh, you know, I, I don't think I ever had the full, complete set, but pretty close for those years. And um, unfortunately, we did lose them. My mom, who's a huge baseball fan, would never have thrown them away. But I do know that ultimately they ended up in some toy chest somewhere in a giant garbage bag. And probably still in teams with rubber bands around them, and uh, I, somehow they got thrown out. They got lost, and and uh, and my parents moved. And I should have taken them with me, but uh, but no, I was I was really into baseball cards, and and um, I was just a, just a normal just a normal kid. That's what we did. As as you grew up, and and you know you were a baseball fan along the way and i'm sure there were moments where you followed it a lot more closely but was there ever a moment in your young uh, adult life where you wanted to be involved in baseball uh, at all uh, or did that moment only kind of happen when the opportunity uh, to buy the cubs came up no you know what happened was uh, at least with me like and this happens with a lot of kids you know baseball you're very close to it as you as you um as you grow up, because you go to games and you watch them on TV and, you know, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, you're still really into baseball. And then I, I faded a little bit on it as I went to, um, you know, through end of high school and into college. And then um, coming to Chicago kind of reindicted me a bit because of uh, my first professional game was at, my first MLB game was at Wrigley Field. And um, so I got back into the Cubs. But then after school was over, uh, we were, I was on the trading floor. So I was on, I was trading, uh, trading stock options on the CBOE at Chicago, down in downtown Chicago. 
And so, um, you know, you, you talk sports all day long. That's all you do. You stand around with the same guys every day and you just have to, you have a lot of time and you don't really get to know their personal lives too much. You might know if they're married or if they have kids or something, but it doesn't get too personal because you're kind of, you're, you're friendly, but you're kind of competing against them. So you talk sports. That's like the neutral, neutral territory, the DMZ for everybody. So, so we talked a lot of sports and then, um, and then during that time, I started picking up the, the Bill James stuff. And, uh, and kind of got reignited with my love for baseball through some of the, some of the ways he answered some of the questions that, of the day and the way he posed them. You know, a lot of the orthodoxy of baseball was challenged by Bill James, who was just a, a fan who at one point working at the, the pork and beans factory, just asked questions different ways and did analysis to try to see if there were, there were, there were different answers to traditional, traditional questions. And so I got back into Bill James. I got into fantasy baseball. I was in a couple of uh, fantasy leagues. And, uh, and that really got me going on baseball. And, um, and about that same time, uh, my brothers and I lived across the street from Wrigley Field. We lived right at the corner of Addison and Sheffield in the, uh, what's now part of the Sports Corner Bar. But back then, the Sports Corner Bar was just a one-floor deal, and we were on the second floor. So... Um, you know, between getting into fantasy baseball and living across the street from Wrigley, you know, it kind of, you know, getting into baseball became something that I thought might be, a, you know, an interesting thing someday in the future. And in fact, in it, when I applied to business school, um, I, I wrote, the question was, what, your, what is your dream job? And I wrote to be owner of the uh, Chicago Cubs. <laughs> and um of course, but I did, and I'll admit, I wrote right after that. But since I may never have a hundred million dollars, I may have to settle for a minor league team. So, um, so, so, so I always, I always thought that would be a fascinating thing. And then, and then, of course, you get married and you have a bunch of kids, like I did, and you get a little, you get a little bit away from it again. But then, when um, when the Tribune was struggling as a company, and knowing that the uh, the Cubs were just a little piece of the Tribune, um, and the Tribune was adding, um, you know, and Sam Zell ended up buying, well, first of all, the Tribune was struggling looking for, for outside equity, outside, outside partners. And I just, it just kind of went in the back of my head that, you know, you know, maybe someday they'll have to sell the team or they'll want to sell the team. And then, um, that's when I kind of floated it past the family. And then, and then Sam Zell bought the club and, and he did a, he's, he's a brilliant businessman and I respect him as much as anyone in the business world. Um, but there was a lot of, a lot of, um, just a lot of leverage on the team, and the newspaper business was really not coming back, and so put a lot of pressure on the organization. And as they were heading toward bankruptcy, um, or as as they were struggling at the time, I didn't realize, I didn't think they were ever going to bankruptcy. But as they were struggling at the time, I thought at some point, you know, with all the, um, with all the the debt that the team has, that they might want to sell the. The the, uh, the the organization has, they might want to sell the team. So, um, and that's when I kind of got excited about getting in because I thought we could be good stewards of the organization and, um, and just kind of, um, you know, just played our cards that way for, if, it was a long, as you guys remember, it was a long, I know, Len, you were around, uh, JD, maybe you were in Houston at the time or something, mm-hmm. but it was a very long, aggravating uh, selling process. It took several years, but um, and went through the financial crisis. So, uh, you know, fortunately, we hung around the rim long enough that when when the dust settled, we um, we we were uh, we were owners. Well, it's interesting because I, yeah, I was here, and early in the process, someone in town who is pretty well connected, just unsolicited, uh, said the Ricketts family they're they're going to get the team, and this ended up being you know well before anything was finalized. So the question to you would be. Uh, there had to be a moment fairly early where you thought you had a really good chance. Was there ever a moment where you got your hopes up and then thought, oh, it's just it's just not in the cards? Or did you feel confident pretty much throughout the process that it would happen? No. Well, so, so we, we put our, um, you have to apply. So we, we turned our application in and, you know, I was fairly confident. Well, we'll we have as good a chance as anybody. but. If you remember, the way it worked in those days was, you know, the Commissioner Seelig had a lot of control over who the end buyer would be. 
And so one of the other bidding groups was led by a gentleman named John Canning, who's now he's a good friend of mine. I really respect John more than almost anyone. He was leading a group and he was a, he was a minority owner of the Milwaukee Brewers and friends with Commissioner Selig. So there was about a year where everyone said, oh, that's so great. You want to buy the Cubs. But you know, John's friends with Bud. And so uh, that's what's going to happen. And, you know, and, and so that, that always kind of, you know, it kind of bothered me that that's the way it might go. But we got to know the commissioner. And, and if you know Sam Zell, you kind of think, well, this is an organization that's looking to, um, to, to sell the team at the best price. They're not necessarily going to just go with, you know, who the commissioner likes. And in the end, I think Commissioner Schuylig was completely comfortable with our family, obviously. And he did not uh, get involved to put his thumb on the scale about who the final buyer would be. But then there was, so we thought, you know, I thought, well, it's an auction. So the highest, highest bidder wins an auction. So that, that's, you know, kind of what was in the back of my head. And then when the financial crisis really hit, I, you know, I, I really felt we had a better chance because a lot of people, you know, you, they get quote unquote called owner, but they're, they're a person who put in, you know, um, 10 or 20% of the money and they got a bunch of other people to put in money with them. And a lot of guys wrote checks. And in a crisis like, like what was going on in 08 and 09, it's pretty hard to keep a bunch of guys willing to write you checks. And uh, I just kind of felt like the, the other bidding groups would have a harder time uh, than, than, than we would because we were just a single family without any, we didn't have to manage, you know, other outside investors at the time. So, so I, I felt pretty confident toward the end, but you never know until it's over. There were a lot of twists and turns and extremely complicated transaction. So, but, um, but like I said, we finished, finished strong. Was it a, was it a tough sell to the family, Tom? A little bit, uh, you know, because you know, basically it's in a family trust, right? It's, it's money that's been set aside by my parents with great foresight years and years and years ago. And um, so the first person I ran it by was my dad. And my dad is a brilliant businessman who has, who has uh, obviously made an incredible amount of money, been very successful in, in multiple businesses too, not just in, in, in his main business. Um, and I floated it past him and he said it was literally the stupidest idea he's ever heard. <laughs> And, and I'll leave out, I left out the expletive, but, but I said, well, you know, you said it was stupid, but you didn't say, you didn't say no. So as a salesman at heart, you never take, you never take no for an answer anyway. So, um, so anyway, so he, he didn't really, but my dad's not a sports guy. Um, he didn't have the same kind of love for the team as myself and my siblings do. So uh, one of the things we did uh, during that period of time we we're planning on going forward was. We just had a big party on on the rooftops. We had a bunch of people come and rented out a couple of rooftops and threw a giant party. And, and my dad came to it, and my dad was hosting it in a sense for some of us. It was a big birthday event, and he looked out over Wrigleyville, and and he was like, "Wow, I had no idea." And I'm like, "Yeah, this is what I've been saying. Like, the fact is that this is really more than just a sporting event. It, it's it's a family. It's a community. It's a, it's it's a neighborhood. It's um it's something really unique in all of sports." And it wasn't like we said, let's just go buy a sports team. Let's, you know, I don't, you know, it wasn't like let's go pick an NBA team and buy it. No, it was, it was, it was the Cubs. It was, it was the, the team that myself and my siblings um, went to so many games for and, you know, you know, just spent all of our time with. And so, um, you know, I, I, he kind of understood where we were going with it at that point. And then for my siblings, it was pretty straightforward. All big Cub fans. Um, it was their their attitude was more like yeah knock yourself out you know see if you see how far you get, um, and um, and eventually uh, obviously ended up the right way but but a uh, little, little bit bumpy on the sales process early on but we we muscled through. I want to follow up on this, but first a quick word from our sponsor. Dear adventurers, enjoy a summer of excitement with Toyota. Keep it wild in the rugged Forerunner. With its heritage of toughness, the 4Runner is ready for just about anything. Take charge in the 2020 Camry and conquer mountain roads with its available all-wheel drive. Or plan an epic road trip and get comfy while you cruise with your crew in the roomy Highlander Hybrid. 
and drive confidently all the way with electric on-demand all-wheel drive. Whichever you choose in a Toyota, you're sure to make the most of summer. Soak it up, Toyota. Visit your local Toyota dealer or toyota.com to learn more. We are chatting with Cubs Executive Chairman Tom Ricketts. You hit on something very intriguing uh, in talking about this franchise. And uh, a friend of mine kind of gave me this in terms of like silent auction stuff and how you raise money now versus 10, 15, 20 years ago. Stuff doesn't seem as important to people now as experiences, life experiences. And you can speak to this with the Bricks and Ivy Ball, which has raised millions of dollars for Cubs charities. Invariably, Tom, the biggest priced items are not items at all, but it's uh, a slumber party at Wrigley Field. It's being on a rooftop. And that's one thing that this franchise has that a lot of other franchises cannot have, and that is an experience that is unlike any other. Yeah, undoubtedly. Like a couple of things that, you know, after we, after we, you know, finished the deal for the Cubs, like, you know, just getting to know the fans and getting to know, I would meet, you know, whether they emailed me or I met them in the park or met them at convention. Every time you think you've met the biggest Cub fan in the world, a few days later, you meet someone who could have that same title. And the, you know, the depth of passion for the team and, you know, your baseball team is like a member of your family. And, you know, the ballpark's like the extra bedroom, you know, like it's just like, it really is, um, it's, it's a special, special experience to go to a game. And then when you talk about how we raise money at Cubs Charities, which I'm extremely proud of, and I could do several podcasts on Cubs Charities and all the great work that our people have done there. But like, like you talk about the silent auctions, you know, I think as, as, um, as people have gotten wealthier and now they, you know, they, they own more stuff and they have more things, um, they are looking for experiences. People ask me what I collect. I always say friends and memories because I don't collect anything else. Like, you know, and the fact is like, I think there's a lot of people that just, if you can find something unique um, and something meaningful to you and be able to match it with something else you love, like sleeping in a tent on the outfield at Wrigley, I mean, that, that's, you know, that raises a lot of money for charities. So um, anyway, but, but it, but it all goes back to how people feel about how people feel about the ball club and how people feel about the ballpark and how important that is. I, I don't think this is this is a question you probably can't answer, but that's why I'll ask it. I mean, how do you even separate the Chicago Cubs from Wrigley Field and vice versa? It, it's impossible to do. And and to me, uh, winning a World Series was the number one goal you had coming in, and you've done that, and you want to win more. Uh, you, you've given back, as you said, to the community uh, immensely and immeasurably over the de- last decade or so. Um, but I think right up there with those two is preserving and, and really enhancing the experience at, at Wrigley Field. It's it's hard to put into words, and for people who've never been to Wrigley Field, they just have to experience it. Yeah, you know, there, there's a couple things in there. I mean, um, I mean. First of all, as, as, as you recall, when it was time to, you know, to start renovating and improving the ballpark, you know, there's a lot of teams that a lot of, a lot of teams or a lot of other clubs that could just say, well, fine, if you don't hurry up and give me what I want, I'm going to the suburbs or whatever. And, you know, that, that was never a credible thing to say because, the I don't think that any team, maybe the Red Sox, but I don't think any team is so intertwined with its ballpark as we are. And you know, you talk about the goals. You know, we did stay on state on our first uh, day of ownership. The goals were to win the World Series and preserve and improve Wrigley Field and, and do more for the neighborhood. And I mean, obviously, the first goal we accomplished that. And and um, you know, as you know, as as in my chair, I, I think I had a, a you know tiny small part to do with it, but. You know, wins on the field really, they belong to the players and the managers and the, and the guys that, that really did it. Um, but with the wind at the, with, with the ballpark, you know, if, if I ever were to think about like a legacy that, that I have on, on earth, 
I think that I can safely say I, I've done more to save Wrigley Field than anyone else. I mean, that what we had to go through those first few years, um, what we had to do to um, to just you know, just Chicago is just a hard place to get stuff done at times, and and um, with all the competing uh, interests and everything that we had to work through to to be to be steady and consistent and keep keep our eyes on the horizon and keep pushing forward. And um, and reminding ourselves that, I mean, you you don't leave Wrigley Field because the mayor just tried to embarrass you in the press. You don't leave Wrigley Field because uh, you have an alderman who who gives you a hard time. Those aren't those aren't good enough reasons. And um, so I'm as I as I as I look back at no matter what happens over the next how many years. I'm in this job. I'll always be very proud of the effort we put forward to um, to not only save the ballpark for the next hundred years, but to to really improve it and improve the area around it. Is there a what's next, Tom, at the ballpark or around the ballpark, or do you feel like you've kind of completed the big project and now you can just kind of walk? Well, it's it's it. The what's next was enjoy it for a few years, <laughs> and then the, that was the plan for 2020 anyway. Uh, you know, once we got the press box done this spring, we were done with the majority of the planned renovations for the ballpark. And of course, with the hotel opening up and and and, and all the restaurants and everything around the ballpark, it was it was just full steam ahead for uh, for this year. Um, so I don't have we don't have a big next step. Uh, the big next step for us this year is 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 the network, and from the network you know, focusing on everything we can do to be as close to the fans as possible and give them all the, all the, all the, uh, the, the fan experiences and fan insights as we can, because, um, as, as I tell the players every first day of spring training, like without the fans, we're, we're all doing something else and, um, just really refocus on the fan experience, but that's very difficult when you can't have fans come to the ballpark. So anyway, um, no big plans for next stuff. Uh, I'm sure we'll, find a few little things to do, but, you know, we're going to run it like it was going to be for, for a while here. Well, none of this situation uh, we're dealing with is funny, but you, you try to find humor where you can. The irony of, of marquee sports network is you, you're going to have bigger ratings than ever because people can't be in the ballpark. So it's kind of a, uh, an interesting uh, way to roll out the network here. And I know, as you mentioned, Mike McCarthy and Mike Santini, everybody at the network is just, chopping at the bit to get to opening day because we, we got in a nice groove in spring training and then to have everything stop. Uh, I know there, there are tons of excited people just very anxious to get to, to July 24th. Yeah, absolutely. I'm looking forward to it myself. Like the, just want to um, just, just get it rolling, get it rolling. And, um, you know, and I'm sure we'll learn a few things over the last, uh, you know, over the 60 games that we, that we have. And, um, and we'll incorporate them and come back even stronger next year. We had Billy Williams and Fergie Jenkins on, uh, I believe, back-to-back weeks uh, earlier, uh, about a month ago. And uh, with all that's been going on in the country, uh, they recounted some of their experiences as major league players. Uh, In Billy's case, uh, before he ever got to the big leagues, uh, I know you heard some of those conversations and um, you know the diversity council being formed at the uh, at the ballpark uh, with the the front office. Um, it, it's so important right now to listen to those stories as hard as they those are to hear. Uh, and, in, and in particular, I thought uh, Billy really kind of captured just how many obstacles he had to get over, and really never talked about it a whole lot until he was asked, which is amazing. Yeah, I um, I, I heard both of those shows. Um, and the, uh, you know, Billy obviously is just such a classy gentleman and uh, just a sincere, honest, direct person. And the way he recanted his stories um, or retold his stories was, was, was really great. And honestly, I think you guys did a real service to uh, your listeners, but also for posterity, because we need to hear those stories and we need to keep them. And uh, we have to remind ourselves it wasn't that long ago that a future Hall of Famer had to sit on the bus while his teammates brought him dinner because he wasn't allowed to go into the restaurant. I mean, those um, or his the story about his wife and his uh, his his uh, his friends or his other the other player's wife having to sit in a different section 
I mean, that's, that's, I mean, I don't know for maybe for our generation, we don't, it doesn't, doesn't, doesn't seem realistic. It, it seems unthinkable, but it wasn't that long ago. But, you know, I think that's, um, I mean, that's good context. And, and it was, it was really interesting that you had him on your, sh- had both of those guys on your show during the, uh, you know, the, the recent events around, um, you know, recent, uh, you know, recent events and different race issues that have happened in the country. And, and, you know, it's really been a, a big thing for us, obviously, uh, you know, as you mentioned, we, we have launched a diversity and inclusion committee at the, at the team. You know, we looked at ourselves and said, well, you know, forgetting what major league baseball is doing, which I'm sure they're going to be doing a lot more going forward and, you know, forgetting, um, you know, what's happening in, in, in the bigger picture, you know, what can we do ourselves uh, to, you know, to be a more diverse, to be more inclusive and to be more representative of our city? Because I think we've always done very well in hiring and in the, uh, with female executives, we've done pretty well with hiring with, uh, you know, Hispanic, uh, you know, or uh, Mexican Americans or other types of Latin Americans. We have, you know, a fair number, but with African Americans, it's been harder, uh, harder for us to, um, um, to, you know, to, you know, to find the right people and keep them. And we have to refocus on that. And that's one of the goals of the inclusion committee, but that's just one. There's many other things we can be doing. It also refocuses us on uh, what we're doing around the city. Um, we have a lot of initiatives that uh, coming through Cubs Charities and um, and our other organizations to do what we can for the neighborhoods where, you know, where young people grow up without a lot of hope or without a lot of um, guidance. You know, we do, um, we, we've built ballparks all over the city, so safe places for kids to go play. But I think one of the things that, that that's even more important than ever is we um, we run programs where we train coaches, you know, trauma informed coaching, and uh, what they call social emotional development, um, where they basically, you know, try to remind the the coach that some of these some of these young people, both boys and girls, are you know from non traditional homes or have really robust challenges, and and look for ways to give them. Uh, you know, the kind of leadership and, and really make the sport more about, um, you know, more about the positive things about team sports as opposed to just are you winning or are you losing? So all those programs that we've, we've run and Alicia Gonzalez, who runs Cubs Charities, is brilliant and committed and works very hard toward all these things. Um, she has a great team with her and they're doing a great job of getting those out. And those kind of programs are going to be more important than ever going forward. So we just... Um, we just have to refocus on what we can do at the team and refocus on what we can be doing for the city. And, and I would I would have to think you sleep very well at night uh, from the baseball side of things uh, with Theo Epstein running uh, everything. Uh, he's been uh, right out front uh, in not only with the Cubs, but Major League Baseball in discussing some of these uh, race issues. Uh, going back to the trade for Aroldis Chapman, uh, the Addison Russell situation in terms of uh, domestic violence training. Uh, these are very dicey and tricky issues, as you know, Tom. Um, but Theo, I think when, when he speaks about these things, he's, he's incredibly upfront, he's eloquent. And, and, and I think even when, when some people don't agree with maybe certain baseball decisions that have been made, by the end of his uh, description or analysis of not only why the Cubs did it, but how they then took that situation and went beyond to try to make something positive out of it. I think everyone certainly would understand it. Uh, and, and I'm guessing he converted a few people who may not have originally disagreed with some of those decisions. Yeah. Theo is undoubtedly as thoughtful and thorough as any baseball executive uh, ever. And when we've had these incidences, obviously, um, uh, Aroldis, when, when we brought him in, and um, and Addison, and then uh, Daniel Murphy, and you know, and when we get these these kind of things, um, we just try to be as thoughtful as possible. And you know, and I think I'm, you know, I'm I'm proud of the way we handled um, these issues. I mean, I, I really am. I think we, you know, I think our guys do a great job, and um, and they don't just say, "Oh, it's just baseball. Who cares?" Um, they know that baseball is a lot bigger than just 
uh, what's happening on the field. It's a big part of our society. And when we make decisions based around what happens off the field, we have to be very careful and thoughtful about um, what those decisions mean. So you guys are talking about Theo, and uh, Theo strikes me as one of those guys who um, is always thinking about what's next. So <laughs> with that in mind, are you worried about losing him, Tom? I mean, this is a guy who you know people keep talking about maybe he has a political future, maybe he wants to do X, Y, or Z. Um, do you get the sense that he's content here, or do you think that maybe he's looking down the road? Yeah, I don't know, Will. Um, you know, he's committed for us for a couple more seasons here. And uh, then we'll cross that bridge when we get there. You know, there's nothing. I'm asking, um, I'm asking for Len. Len was curious because I think Len sees himself in the front office. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm happy with oh, okay. doing what I'm doing. Okay. okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, Len, you know, if, if we get there, we'll, we'll send you the application. Um, the, uh, yeah. No, you know, and um, I think, you know, one of the things that, um, you know, that, that I'm very, very thankful for is, you know, I in the first couple of years, there was a lot of transition at the Cubs. Um, I think maybe the, the hardest thing I've ever had to do is to let Jim Hendry go because I love Jim, still do. Uh, we're still friends. And the way that Jim and Fleeta and those guys treated me as we came in, I'll never, I'll never forget. They were just such great people and um, really helped me as I was drinking from the fire hose those first couple of years. Um, you know, making that transition – from uh, Jim was hard, but once uh, we were able to bring Theo in, you know, a, a lot of the things that I was most concerned about got taken care of. And the other thing that's been really fortunate is the consistency and stability on the business side. Um, you know, Crane was the team president when when we when we, when we closed on the club in whatever two thousand nine, and and um, you know, and and I, I, my my opinion was let's just let's just get to know the guy and uh, see how it goes. And um, the work that the team that he's put together and the work he's done has uh, just been incredible. And so, you know, it, it, it makes me sleep easier on, uh, you know, on the baseball side and sleep easier on the business side, knowing that I have that, that we as an organization have two of the top executives, if, if not the, at the, at the top of the game of the, top couple in the game. And it's, it's, um, it's made my life easier and, um, any success that, that ever gets attributed to the family, um, you know, has to funnel through those guys. Yep. In really good hands with the Theo and Crane. And, uh, one last question. And, you know, I'm, I'm, as JD said, I'm always thinking ahead, Tom, uh, I can, I can imagine Laura and Todd and governor Pete listening to this and going, our brother never even mentioned us. We're on the board. Um, JD yeah. and I have gotten to know all of uh, your siblings, and they've all been incredibly kind to us. And um, what I find interesting about uh, the Ricketts uh, children is that while you all uh, clearly were raised right, you all come at it from very different uh, perspectives, and there's a ton of respect among you all. Uh, is that just come from your parents who kind of allowed everybody to, to, to be themselves. Um, how did that happen? Because sometimes, you know, siblings are all exactly alike, but that's not really the case. Yeah. You know, I guess we do have a little diversity in the group there. Um, we all do come at uh, a lot of issues from different perspectives. Uh, you know, obviously, um, you know, it, it does begin with being thoughtful enough to choose great parents when we, we all did that. And the, um, so we, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, I, I you know, my, uh, my dad, a great businessman who really worked, um, every day of his life. Like we, we, um, we, we weren't a family that had new cars or vacations or, or, I mean, the, the house we grew up in was, um, was modest or at least it, it had a lot of issues with it. We were just a regular kind of like working to get there kind of family as kids. And, um, but I think the thing that probably you know, impact us as much as watching dad grow his business and, and be that kind of leader is my mom is just a, a really strong family person. And um, she comes from a very, very strong family. They grew up on the farm. I mean, my mom didn't have indoor plumbing until she was 14. Like she grew she knew, I mean, she knew the, how, how important family was and, and that it, it really isn't all about money and it isn't all about um, what, what kind of stuff you have. 
And so um, I think she was, you know, uh, the person that really raised us the most at home and, um, you know, instilled in us respect for others and instilled in us a, um, you know, a sense of family. And, and, uh, and I think it's served us well over the years. And we have a lot of big differences on the political level, particularly between, you know, some of my siblings, my sister and my brothers or whatever. And, and, um, but yet we all still get together all the time and we're all very, very close. Um, and, and, um, you know, we still have that, uh, you know, that, that family feeling we had in, you know, growing up 50 years ago. This has been a pleasure, Tom. Thanks so much for the time. And, uh, let's have a fun 60 game schedule and, uh, hopefully the Cubs will be playing deep into October. Yeah, let's hope. I, you know, I, I, uh, I'm, I'm pretty confident this will be, this will work out well. It'll be a fun sprint, you know, for, for the, it'll be different for the fans. It'll be different for the players. And um, I think it'll just be, just be exciting. And I, and, and what I'm really excited about, and I mean, you guys see it as, as, uh, as closely as anyone. Uh, I just think that David Ross has the right skill set, and he has the right guys to, um, you know, to, to get us off to a quick start and maintain a lead and, and get us into the postseason. And, um, you know, as he said, if there's, if they're giving away a trophy, he wants to get it. So um, I think we have, I think we're all set up for what could be a really exciting 60 game season and one that people won't forget. Are you going to listen to this podcast like the other ones? Of course. Oh, listen to me. <laughs> I don't know. But I'll pretty much remember it, but like the, uh, but I don't know who's on next week, but I'll listen to that. I liked, yeah. I liked all of them so far. I liked Woody. I liked Bergie. I liked Billy. All of them. <laughs> Tom, thanks so much. We appreciate it. All right. Take care, guys. Thanks, we'll see Tom. you soon. Yep. Well, I learned a few things uh, that I didn't know before, uh, particularly the uh, time when uh, the Ricketts family had uh, made a bid uh, to buy the Cubs. And as Tom said, it... it it wasn't fast or easy. It, it, it took a while, um, but it's it's kind of hard to believe that uh, they have owned the club as long as they have, over a decade. And uh, Tom's right uh, in terms of preserving uh, and, and really enhancing the experience at Wrigley Field. Uh, his legacy will include winning a World Series for the first time in 108 years for this franchise. Um, but, but I think the ballpark part of this cannot be forgotten. Yeah, and that, that's a great point. That, that that will always be his his legacy that he was able to um, make the improvements that he did at the ballpark, around the ballpark, uh, enhancing the, the game day experience. He, he gave due credit to the players and the manager and the coaching staff for winning that World Series, but he was a big part of that too, as well. Somebody's got to got to write those checks. And uh, I just have one suggestion for Tom: if he ever writes the book, it needs to be in quotes. That's the stupidest idea I've ever heard. Yeah, that's what his dad said uh, when first broached about buying the team. And one last kind of overarching thing that I've noticed, um, and, and it's not always the case. Um, you played for a lot of franchises. Uh, you, you broadcast uh, games in Houston, and uh, you've now been here for, what, eight years. Um, but the family ownership part of this uh, matters. And, and I think all Cubs employees, you know, they, they know who the owner is. Uh, they're able to to talk to him uh, on a on a very one to one level, and that's not always the case uh, with with corporate owned teams and some other situations. Yeah, and uh, just thinking about in terms of personality, when I first came to the big leagues, I was with the Yankees in the mid '80s, and George Steinbrenner was the owner. And George did a lot of wonderful things in his life, but <laughs> that was a different that was a different cat, right? That was a different personality altogether. Uh, Tom just creates a, a very welcoming. Uh, and everybody over there with the Cubs in the front office, a uh, very welcoming uh, environment for all their employees. All right. We skipped an admission last week, so I got to put you on the spot. Do you have anything that's been gnawing at you here? Um, no, I don't. Uh, that was going to be my admission is that I don't have an admission. Um, that's very I unlike you. I know. Um, well, uh, I drove way too fast yesterday. I was late for a golf date. And I was driving my daughter's car, and I looked down, and the the, uh, the needle was really way too high. So I apologize for that. <laughs> my mine is um, one that uh, I've probably given before, and will give again. I like I like it warm, 
not into the 95 degrees near the lake. Like what happened to spring? Like we yeah. went from, we went yeah. from 50 to 90. Like could, could we stop at 72 yeah. every once right. in a while? Yeah. How about just give us a little dose of San Diego here. People. <laughs> exactly. It's just a, it's a nice mild weather. Um, and so much, you know, like every newscast here, right, is every every weather report is cooler by the lake. I'm not so sure cooler by the lake these days. <laughs> exactly. Special thanks. Max Berman, Joe Rios, Matt Romito, Daniel Green, Jim Olboykowicz, Shane McGuire, Adam Sobel. For Jim Deshays, I'm Len Casper. Subscribe, rate, review, share this podcast with your family and friends. We will talk to you next week. Open Concessions, presented by Toyota. <laughs>